Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality, helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and, and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in, in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Climate Consulting. In today's conversation, I chat to Catherine Crump, Managing Director of Wired Consulting. Catherine has had a hugely successful career and one that shows what you can achieve if you put in the work. Having joined Fresh Minds as one of their most junior team members, she worked her way up, becoming CEO of the Spinout Decidedly just a decade later. After 15 years with that business, she decided that the time was right to think about her next challenge. And that's when the role with Wired Consulting came up. The opportunity to launch a completely new consulting business doesn't come up all that often. And to do that within an already hugely well-regarded brand like Wired is something much rarer still. For Catherine, it was an opportunity she couldn't turn down. And in 2019, she made the move to join Wired Consulting as their managing director. But her success hasn't come without sacrifice. And this is a topic that we dive deep into in today's episode, as Catherine shares her candid and refreshing perspective on the challenges of building a career while raising a family at the same time. In this conversation, we go into some fascinating and hugely important topics for anybody looking to climb in consulting and build a sustainable career in the industry. We talk about the pros and cons of big firms versus small boutiques and how these vary depending where you are in your life and the stage of your career. We talk about Catherine's approach to balancing her work and family life and her advice to others grappling with how they can have a career and raise a family all at the same time. And we talk about her journey with Wired Consulting so far, how she successfully managed to build the firm from the ground up, and their phenomenal growth story in spite of the pandemic. Catherine and I cover so much ground in this one and touch on some really poignant topics. Whether you are a young consultant, a young parent, or a young CEO, I know that you are going to get so much from what Catherine has to say. 
So with the intro over, all that is left for me to add is please sit back, relax and enjoy today's conversation with Catherine Crump. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, I'm really looking forward to this one. And I know we've got a lot to cover, but maybe before we dive in, we've been having a bit of a chat ahead of this, so I'm holding myself back. But could you give an overview of your career for our listeners and and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess my career has always been about following my passions and my interests. So, you know, starting with a science degree, which I adored, it gave me great research skills, taught me how to problem solve. And then I remember finishing my degree and thinking, what am I going to do? And I didn't know. So I went to Japan. I taught English for a year and that was extraordinary. I learned how to survive when I had no one around me to ask a question to because everyone I knew was over here. Just a side note, which, where did you teach? I taught in Nara, but I taught out in the paddy fields. So I was in proper rural Japan where no one spoke English. I should add, I didn't speak Japanese when I went. So it was an amazing exercise in just a total sort of culture shock, really. I also learned how to communicate with people who were nothing like me. So it was good. That was good. I came back and I think I'd focused. I knew I wanted to go into business. I started looking at the grad schemes, whatever I thought business was actually, which is probably a wormhole for another day. I wanted to go on a grad scheme. I applied to a few. I ended up taking a job at PwC in their IT consulting arm where I spent a couple of years. I then moved across to another big company. I spent some time at Mars, again, joined in a grad role. Amazing level of training received there, which I think equipped me really well for the next steps in my career because then I went somewhere small. So I went to a very small business that I hadn't even heard of actually when the uh, the opportunity arose. And I thought I should probably try and stay here for five years really. You know, I've been two years everywhere else and I needed to stay put. And uh, 15 years later, I left the business having been CEO for my final three years and moved across to Wired where I am now. And I joined Wired to set up a consulting business, which so far has been an amazing journey. You mentioned you'd done a couple of grad schemes. So you, you obviously did two years at PwC, you did two years at Mars. What was it that made you make those two jumps? And also, what led you to go back to a grad scheme? Because again, some might say that's quite a bold choice. Yeah, good question. I guess the first thing with PwC, <laughs> that was back in the day when uh, it was go- golden age of, I think, consulting schemes. My first three months were spent in Florida on their graduate induction program, which I think was probably quite attractive to most of the people that joined in those days. But being more serious, they gave me a really good grounding in, um, I guess, basic business skills. You know, first job, first time I was in a a truly commercial world. And actually the IT screen was very much about coding as well. So when you ask about why I moved on, that was back in the day, large SAP implementations, lots of coding. I learned loads, but that wasn't my passion. And as I said, right at the beginning, I've kind of tried to follow what do I enjoy? What do I love? And and I knew at that point, I like the client facing piece. And of course, when you're very junior in a very big consulting firm, you get some of that, but let's be honest, not a huge amount. And so I then, again, I had a friend actually at Mars who was talking about the amazing training that Mars offers, but very much a client facing role that I was looking at. So sales skills, negotiation skills, presentation skills, just the most phenomenal foundation of, yeah, business ready skills that I could have imagined. So I hopped over to there. I learned so much and things that at that stage in your career, you think, I remember sitting in the training thinking, really? What to take to a meeting, right? And how to listen. I remember going on a whole training program about how to listen and thinking, gosh, you know, do I need this? But my God, I did. And, And it's only now when I look back and I see people rocking up to meetings without the right things and asking crazy questions and then asking a question that someone has just answered because they weren't listening. And so I was very lucky to have that when I did. And it meant that when I went across to this company of 10, really my mid-20s still at that point, I had all the training under the sun that in the big companies I hadn't really been able to leverage. And then when you go somewhere small, you get to use it, right? You get to use it in spades and you'd never get that training in, in a small company. So, you know, and I know one of the things you and I spoke about earlier was the difference between big and small and, and whether big is right for some people and small is right for others. And I think it depends what you're looking for, right? If you're comfortable to go into a company, give it your best shot, you know, find your path forward. You don't need robust, rigorous training schemes. You can just land on your feet, have a go and get stuck in. If you're fortunate or if you're not sure and you want to build that confidence, maybe go somewhere where you'll get that first. Like 
get the training, feel like you know what you're doing, and then go somewhere you can you can put that in place. So um yeah, real I think real pros for me of going big first and then small, but would it have worked the other way around? Maybe it would, I guess times one of those questions. Like that. Exactly. You, you'll never know the answer. I, I do think though, something in there, Catherine, that you said around you, you didn't know you needed the training until you you had it. I mean, so my graduate scheme, I remember, I think we spent 10 weeks of pure training. And actually you think nowadays that the amount of investment and cost of that, but the skills, it's a real tangent, but you mentioned, what does one take to a meeting? What should you take? Do you remember? I do. What, I do. What, what should I have? I, or what should our listeners have? In We're- those days, business cards, probably a bit less relevant in, in, in this day and age. Two pens, because one may well run out, notepad, and then any of the prep that you needed. But really simple stuff. But, you know, two pens. I still take two pens. I, I, that is great advice. I, I remember listening to a, I think it was a Marine or a Navy SEAL on a podcast, and they have a mantra of two is one and one is none. And so you won't see it today, but I do have a spare microphone in my bag just in case one of these breaks, because you never know. But yes, I love that. And I'd be interested how that shift for you, how you you found going from, say, a a Mars to Fresh Mars, because I think, you know, I, I did... A similar move, albeit it was from a much smaller firm than Mars to a much larger firm than Fresh Mars. And I remember my mind was blown because there wasn't an at HR email address. You know, I didn't, there wasn't a function. There was a person in the office, you know, they had a name, they're a human, you go and see them. And it took me probably longer than it should to have adapted to that. And that's obviously quite a small thing, but I'd love to get your take on how that shift was. You know, what were those big shifts that you kind of, I guess, just were completely different from what you had at Mars? And how did you adapt to that? I guess in short, I loved it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. And it's the reason I stayed so long. I remember just being struck in my first week by total coincidence. There was a meeting with Mars and um, I went to this meeting, but this time I was obviously on the other side of the fence. I was with Fresh Minds and I met somebody super senior. You know, they were in a head of a strategy role. They were, it's a very zonal company, Mars. And, you know, they were one of the top level of zones. And I remember sitting in that meeting and thinking, if I'd stayed in Mars, it would have taken me about four years to have a meeting with you and be in the same room as you talking like this. And actually, in just the case of a, a time of a few weeks had passed, and I'd leapt over that, and I was now able to converse at really much more cerebral level on picking some of the business problems. And so I think I immediately had this realization that in a small business, the exposure, and I touched on that before, the exposure, the topics, the decisions that you can get involved in right from the, really right from the outset are just of a different level. I, I love that example. And, and I mean, I, I know my team find it in our business, but all boutique consultancies that I know, you know, it's exactly that. Suddenly you're, the expectations are higher, you're into a higher level. And and that's not to say that those bigger firms are, are worse. It's just, there's a different structure. And it, I guess we've talked a lot about the pros. Were there any, because people listening to this are, are probably weighing up, you know, do I apply to one of those grad schemes? Do I, you know, reach out to boutiques? Were there any downsides? You mentioned training being one, but were there any others where you think, actually, you need to be careful, make sure this is right for you before you do it? Yes. I think you have to be comfortable with a lot less structure. It's exactly to your point, you know, there's not going to be the HR team who's been there 20 years who can tell you exactly how everything works. So you have to be comfortable with less structure. You have to be comfortable with uncertainty and you have to be really comfortable with not knowing the answer because it sort of links into training a bit. But in a big company, there is always someone to ask, right? If you don't know the answer, you go and ask your manager who's got years more experience or, you know, you go and ask Team X. And I think when you're somewhere small, more often than not, there isn't someone to ask and you've got to figure it out. So I think being comfortable with problem solving, finding the answers and massive levels of ambiguity is really important. And if you're not, you know, and you are someone who likes to feel like you're in a comfort zone, there's always, someone's always got your back, then actually probably starting really small isn't for you. No, I, th- I think it's a really good point. And I also think it's a good caution because in today's world with, I guess, entrepreneurship and, and tech being very cool, people, are, there's a sort of race to smaller firms. And actually, we both run smaller businesses. They have many advantages, but actually they are also fraught with certain risks if that's not for you. And I think some of those more traditional companies can be really good for people. And, and I guess maybe to, to close that piece off, because you mentioned, obviously, you moved twice. You'd sort of felt you'd got what you could from those roles. Actually, thinking of those people who are in those firms and they're thinking about this, actually, what can they be asking themselves to decide if the time is right to move? Because there's always a 
next promotion, next project in a big firm, there's always risk in a small firm. How can someone decide if actually it is the time for them to, to take that leap? Oh, that's such a good question. And I don't even think there's one answer. I really think it just depends on the on the individual and also what else you've got going on in your life. And I know we'll come on to this, but you know, if you're if you're someone who's supporting a family, for example, you've got to think about policies, flexibility, you know, the, the wider context of that role. It's not just what you do every day when you rock up and what's on your job spec. It's around everything that surrounds you. It's around the company culture. And so the right time to move really depends on Yes, whether you want to stretch and whether you want to move up, but also your ability to have the life that you want around that. So I don't know, my my advice, to be honest, would be check out the new option before you jump, because uh, so many people I've seen think the grass is greener, jump and wish they hadn't. So do you know what? There is no right time. You will never know. But my one piece of advice would be do your research and um, go in and meet everyone. Make sure it's the right job for you. No, I think a great point. And Catherine actually has very nicely teed me up for the next section of our conversation. So thank you for that, because you, you're quite right about that life point. And I, I was really interested to, to dig into to your own life experience. And, and we're fast forwarding a bit. So Fresh Minds had split into two businesses, Fresh Minds and Decidedly. And, and as a side note for anyone listening, if you want to find out the Fresh Minds story, James Callender, the current CEO, has been on the podcast. So I'm not going to ask you about the origins of those, um, but I'm really keen almost to start when you went back, because at the time you'd just become CEO, you had two kids, you know, they were little kids. We've, we've recently had our first and right now the idea of having more than one child blows my mind. So you had two, you had a high powered job, you were busy. Actually, tell me the story of that time. How did you make all that work? You know, how did you balance that home life, that family life? And how did you make that work for you? Do you know, it's really funny looking back at that. I also find myself asking the same question. Um, <laughs> Again, seriously, it was hard. It was hard, right? I was really, really busy. I worked really, really hard. I've always worked really hard, but that's probably the time of my life when I worked harder than ever. I think right from sort of going back after my first child, even, I very quickly realized that um, my view is that you cannot have it all. You cannot juggle everything. You can't be perfect at all those elements of your life. And I, I always think, you know, in my life, I've probably got four main levers I can play with because I've only got one day and I can't extend the hours in that day, no matter how many times I wish I could. But, you know, I've got work, family, friends and me. And I think over that window of time, particularly when I was getting up to grips with the role, I was thinking about all the change I wanted to make. I had to make trade-offs on those. Okay. So work had to go up. I had to spend a bit more time there. My family, I had two small kids. I still saw them. I still put them to bed as often as I could and then worked after. I definitely over those years was the one out of our friendship group from school and uni who was more often than not late, missing things. And in terms of me time, that probably went out the window <laughs> a lot more than it should have done. But that's okay, right? Because that was still my choice. And I loved my job and I loved the opportunity and I was grateful to have it. And, and I threw myself into it. And when I look at people who've gone through tough times or hard times or just really successful times, there are none of them that will get to the end of that and not have made that trade-off with one of those elements of their life because that's what it takes, you know, unless you've got some sort of Harry Potter-esque time turner, it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I think that might be the first ever Harry Potter reference we've had on the podcast, Catherine. So well done. And, and I think it's a really powerful point and, and worth spending a bit of time on, I guess, because I love those levers and they give us a, a good framework for a, for a conversation around it. And you do meet a lot of people who have achieved a lot in work, but may have not consciously sort of pulled those other levers down. So you said you'd sort of made that choice. And maybe we start there kind of when, when you were thinking about going back to work or when you just got back, how did you, you know, structure that or in your, your own head sort of decide what was right for you so that you were comfortable? Because I think that comfort is so important to, you know, call it mental health, call it work-life balance. Deciding seems to make having the decision is the important thing. So how did you get comfortable with that? Uh, I think you've almost just said the right phrase there. I think I did get comfortable with it. I think I knew from the outset that certainly from a family perspective, I would have to think carefully about that. This wasn't just about me. I exist in part of now what I would consider a team of four. I have one amazing co-pilot who helps me, uh, you know, succeed in that in that team of four. And so my husband and I had some, you know, really good conversations around what that was going to look like. I think, uh, to be honest, again with my social life, I think I've always been someone who's worked hard, right? 
maybe I've always been the person who's a bit late. Maybe I'm always the person who says I'll be there at seven, but really I get there at half seven. And maybe that's something I should be better at. But I think I realized that it mattered this time. And I realized it was a conscious decision rather than just something I floated into. And I knew that I wouldn't, you know, do the hobbies, read a book as much as I wanted to. Maybe I was reading business books, but I wasn't reading the fiction books that I was before. Except for Harry Potter, by the sounds of it. So I know that was reading to the kids, actually. So um, that was the family. Yeah, that's the family bits. That's the one that I, I I tried not to bend too much. But you know what? With all these things, and again, my probably biggest learning from all of this. You can't have it all. We all find ways that work for us. We all pull those levers in a way that suits our own lives. And what works for me may not work for you and it may not work for the next person, but we each find that balance that, you know, helps you survive, uh, if not thrive. And, um, and also it, these things change, right? When your kids are the age of yours, when they're tiny, it's really different. You're not sleeping as much. You know, they go to bed at six o'clock, whereas my kids go to bed at half eight, nine now. If I get home a bit late, I still see them, right? So it gets easier quite quickly. Well, thank thank you for that moral support for um, myself and any other young parents. I'm, I'm now at the stage of life where a lot of my my friends and peers are having kids as well. So we're all all in this together. So anyone like me listening, it, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And you mentioned you, know, you you had that chat with your your husband, your co-pilot, and talk me through that as much as you're comfortable because I I think. You know, as life gets more complex, these conversations become more challenging. There's more more to talk about. And particularly, and I'm making some big assumptions here, it's quite traditional that the man will be the breadwinner and the man will be the one to go to work. You know, you you mentioned that you were getting home and you might put the kids to, to bed. So I'm assuming either you had childcare support, or your husband did it. So maybe if you're happy to talk me through kind of that conversation and how you two got comfortable with the structures that you put in place. Yeah. Uh, good question. So I think the first thing is in some ways, it, maybe it was easier for us than, than other couples, perhaps in that I am, uh, don't like to admit this often. I'm four years older than my husband, but that does mean, and that is a significant point because it meant that it, when we had kids, my career was more advanced. Okay. So I pushed up further. My salary was higher. And therefore in some ways it was just a bit of a no brainer, right? It was going to be me that was kind of going back and continuing to push. And also, I think, should I, should I say this? I think I'm a bit more driven. I think he'd, I think he'd be okay with that. I think we both derive our satisfaction from different things and we recognize that in each other. So I think the first thing him and I did was we sat down and we looked at those circumstances. Like, where was he? Where was I? What did he want? What did I want? And again, that varied over both, both of our children. But with the second one, that for me was the game changer because with our second child, I did nine months, still did nine months of maternity leave and he did the last three. Okay. And I think what you find once you do maternity leave is you're, you're out the workforce, right? And maybe then the expectation is, well, you know, she's the one that knows how the feeding works and how the routines are. And so it's just easier for her to carry on with that. Whereas actually we got to the point where he also knew how all that stuff worked, right? So really either of us could do this. So I think we had the discussion, we were honest, but importantly, since then we've reevaluated, you know, and I have friends who've gone through the same things as us. And they've also made some really kind of team focused decisions that they were going to take turns in their career. Uh, you know, I've got a couple, she works for the UN. He's always had extremely successful roles across various organizations and they've literally taken turns. So I used the word team earlier, but we are, right? And, and actually for us, that's what works. And um, always remembering that is um, is probably the most important bit. I think some great advice. I'm, I'm going to come on to, we don't have to talk about your specific friends, but I want to come back to that point around taking turns. I guess a really practical question, and again, I ask this for all the young parents listening, that conversation sounds like a really good one. You sat down, lots of consideration. Actually, how did you make the time for this? You know, Bedtime comes and you've got to clear the house. And this is a really practical question. Is Did you have a regular family meeting where this came up? Was it something you just knew you had to talk about? Was it more organic than that? And it just, you know, over a few days, the chat, as I say, it's a really practical question, but I suspect listeners and, and people like myself, these are the conversations you want to have. It's finding that time. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, and, and you've hit the nail on the head. You have to make the time, but I think that crops up naturally because there comes a point where one of you is thinking about going back to work. And so there's so many things that go with that. Like, how, again, how does that work? How does nursery work? Who's who's doing pickup? Are we doing it on different days? 
And I think, again, you, if you don't make the time, you're just going to float into it. And, and actually probably long-term, somebody is going to resent that. So if you don't open up that conversation around what you really want and what I really want and how we make sure neither of us wakes up in 12 months and goes, oh my God, what happened to my career? Then you could end up in trouble. No, I think a great point. And you mentioned that you and your husband have kind of balanced this over the years and you, you gave the example of your friends there. I'd, I'd love to get your take on actually getting over potential anxieties about that because you know with women going on maternity leave there's that natural oh gosh i've been out of the workforce for a year or will people think i you know you mentioned like will people think i'm i'm not as focused or committed and and it, i'm sure it's the same for for men who take time out it's like well yeah have you got the skills why is your you know you see a cv that says you've got 5 years experience you see a face that says should be 10 years experience why is that kind of when you've had these conversations with friends and, and others, sort of how would you encourage people to think about that? And for anyone who's who's nervous about that sort of going back, I guess what what would you say to them? I think again it depends where you're at. So I was extremely lucky, you know, when I went through this, when I went through two lots of maternity leave, I was in a company where I'd been for a while. Okay. And in terms of my career progression, and I I fear this is not normal, right? But it was almost irrelevant. Okay. They knew my skills. They knew how hard I worked. They knew what I was capable of. It was, you know, I came back. I think I've been missed and I just carried on. And I can imagine, I can imagine if you are having a career change between going off and coming back and you haven't got that trust in your workplace, I'd love to talk to someone about that and how they've found that. But I am fortunate that that was not my experience. So really all that mattered was that I just learned to juggle differently. You know, I still worked hard. I worked different hours. I left the office sometimes at half five so I could come home, pick the kids up, put them in bed. And then I just did whatever I hadn't been able to do earlier when I got home. And back to balancing social life and me time, et cetera, that stuff goes, but it meant that I could balance my family and I could keep my career pushing forwards. And in those two areas of my life, I tried really hard not to let anyone down because, you know, those are probably the two that have to be at the top of my priority list. I think a great point, Catherine. And actually, there's something subtle in there around the type of firm you were in, I suspect, as well. Because if actually, like you said, you know, it's, it's based on them knowing you, it's a small team as opposed to a, a grade matrix, a structure where there is an implicit you know, time served element, that obviously creates that opportunity to to not have, you know, nine months is actually not a long time out of the workforce when you think about it. And then going back, it's the skills people focus on. And I think just, yeah, it, a great, almost you, you in that way are a great case study for other listeners thinking, will I still be able to go back? Should I go back? I want to actually touch on, because we, we've touched on family and we, we may come back to that, but you mentioned around going back and the other side of this, so work was obviously a big part for you. You, you went into turn a business round in effect. And so this isn't something I touched on with um, James on our, our conversation. So I'd be interested to get your sort of that next chapter of maybe start with set the scene as you can kind of what was the business you'd walk back into and and what were some of those things that you were facing and then we're going to dive into how people can do it for their own business but maybe set the scene what what was those challenges you were walking into okay so i think when i went on my second maternity leave the timing was really tricky so at the time one of the other founders of the business um caroline who was actually wonderful and had been so was always so supportive actually in my career and as a, as a female leader we both ended up off at the same time which you know in a small business that's pretty unlucky and i think when i got back there'd just been a lot of churn in the time that i was away and again when you're a small business i think you feel that and there was probably a lot of new people who you know didn't have that long-term knowledge of the business. And so I think when I went back, you know, this business that I said this earlier, I'd loved, right. And I, I'd nurtured it and I'd given so many hours of my life quite willingly to it. In some places it, it was a little bit broken, right. And it just, what did I do? It just needed slightly more restructuring, right. It needed to be structured. You need to think about, have you got the right people in the right roles, doing the right things, have we still got all the foundations right? You know, are we keeping our clients happy? Because your clients, of course, and your people are the lifeblood of your business. So I think the important thing here for anybody looking at, I don't know, turning a business around or even creating a business, it's not actually focusing on the, the really exciting, shiny stuff at times like that. It's quite often, are the real building blocks in place here? Because if you're not building on strong foundations, 
it's not going to work, right? So I would say it was just making sure that we put those strengths back in underneath and put it in a place that you can build on. I think a really key point. And and just to dig into that, we are approaching a recession. And, and unfortunately, that means for some businesses, they, they will struggle. They'll go through challenging times. You, you touched on there around you know, put clients first. That's one of those basics. I guess for anyone listening, thinking of their business, if they are in a sort of turnaround situation, was there anything else you found had a kind of disproportionately large impact or, or likewise, anything you thought would, would have an impact and actually didn't do what you'd hoped? I'm actually going to answer that a bit differently, if I may, because I, I, I'm hopeful I can bring the voice of many other businesses. So I've, I've actually just spent the last few weeks going around the country meeting lots of mid-sized businesses, so probably 10 to 50 million turnover. I've been meeting inspirational speakers at these events, and there's uh, probably a couple of people that stand out to me. But but one of them is this wonderful guy called Paul Richardson. Paul Richardson grew up in the West Midlands. He's been in a range of businesses from waste disposal to fashion. And he has done extremely well for himself. He's just bought Birmingham City Football Club, in fact. So very he's well for clearly himself. doing very well. And we asked him this question, right? We we asked him, you know, how, what do you do when times are tough and how do you build resilience? And one of the things he said that resonated with pretty much everyone in the room was at times like this, you almost have to do the opposite thing, right? You've got to be braver. And people's instinct is often to hunker down, to save the money. And actually, if you've got some money and you've got those foundations, you've got to be brave, okay? Because now is the time to win and to stand out and to make sure your business is thriving. And I think when he said that, I was just like, oh my God, yes. And do you know what? Maybe I wish I'd been braver. And you could see, as I said, a lot of people in the room like, yeah, okay, right, let's do this. And so I think perhaps for me, it was a surprising answer, but a really good one. No, I, I love that. And, and yes, I think a much better way to answer the question. I'm going to, because you've now mentioned it, any other people like Paul that stood out? Any other things that you took from that roadshow? You know, it sounded like you spoke to a lot of people. Anything else that? Oh my goodness, yes. Um, so I was actually I was up in up in Scotland. We met this wonderful lady called Darina Garland, who'd started a company called Uni Pizza Revens. She started it with her husband in London, actually, I think in about 2012, so about 10 years ago. And then they'd gone up to Scotland and they became Scotland's fastest growing business. And some of her amazing lessons, again, though, were around foundations, you know, getting legals in place, making sure that your, you know, your, your products and your route to market and supply chain, particularly in this market, like getting those nuts and bolts in place. So she was amazing. Uh, someone else who stood out to me, speaking as I do within Wired and within Condé Nast, in my first two months here, I had the opportunity to sit in a room with Anna Wintour. Anna Wintour, who obviously has a, a pivotal role within our business. And I asked her, you know, what advice would you give to somebody, or particularly a female looking to succeed in our world? And um, what she said resonated with, again, what, what Paul said, you work hard. Really simple, right? You work hard. Nobody succeeds in business, right? By putting an average effort in. If you put an average effort in, you get an average outcome. And actually, if you want to succeed, you work hard. And I feel like we could go off on a, on a tangent here, which we won't. But, you know, when I hear please, about please all this, the, the quiet quitting culture and, you know, I just wonder how many of those people are, if they heard this, how many of them are willing to work hard, right? What do you think is going to come of this when you wind forwards 10 years and you've never put the graft in? Who's going to be running the country's companies? But uh, as I say, then maybe that's maybe that's one for another day. Well, no, I I, I think it's a re it is a really interesting point, and I, and I think it ties back to what you were saying about those levers as well, because something from you know, your own journey and, and Anna's advice there, it's you made those decisions and sacrifices, and and I think there is a. In a good way, we focus a lot more now on sort of work-life balance and and you know making sure you've got different things in your life. But I, I think your point's quite key of actually that doesn't have to be a permanent state. So the idea that you should have, I don't know, if, you know, you you had four different levers, you have each at 25% is success. Actually, most of the time that's failure because if you're doing a little bit of everything badly, you're not doing anything well. And I think your point there around hard work is a really interesting one. You know, that yes, you know, you look at sports stars, no one got to the top by not working. And I think that skill is, it's almost taken on a dirty word. Like hustle has become dirty and actually hard work is at the core of, of every, yeah, any, well, anyone who's been on this podcast and, and anyone else who sort of had success. So no, I think it's a really great point. Particularly in consulting, I think. And, you know, my view of this is if you are always working those hours, crazy hours, and if it's not your choice to work those hours, and if your employer's expectation is that you work those hours, that's not okay. That is a cultural and a workplace issue. However, 
there will be times when to help your team and to deal with workload and to help your company win, you do need to put those hours in, right? And then hopefully your employer will say, right, you've just had a really busy few weeks. You need to just, you know, look after yourself in the next few. Take it easy. This is not the expectation. So for me, uh, it's important I couch that with, yes, work hard, but on your terms. And when it's not on your terms, only those times you have to, right? And if it's expected of you, that's a totally different situation. I think a great point and, and touches actually on something. So one of my previous guests, Mark Campbell, made the point that consulting is a black hole and, and will take as much as you give. And, and, you know, I know personally, I, that really hit me when, you know, I, I sort of burnt out in consulting working too hard. It, it actually, that wasn't my, my company. That was me. But I do think, you know, as you've heard, it's, it's that balance of work hard, but know when, you know, you have worked too hard for too long either because the company is expecting it or, you know, is, is badly run. I mean, that's, we touched on small businesses. That's sometimes a challenge. If there's not enough people, you know, sometimes that's okay for a short period. For a long period, there's an issue. But same for yourself of know those levers. And if 100% is work and nothing else, maybe you need to talk to yourself. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. And as I say, it's um, when it's on me, when it's my choice, I've always worked hard. I'm all right with it. And I'm happy with a reasonable dose of when it isn't. But uh, yes, when it becomes the norm and I'm not wanting that, that's uh, that's different. And that is when people burn out, right? And break down because it's not healthy. It's not healthy. It brings me on to something I wanted to ask you about. Because when we were sort of speaking ahead of the show, you, you made the point you weren't the person who wanted knew from sort of the age of 15 or 16 they wanted to be a CEO. And I, I've always been jealous of people who wanted to be doctors. That was almost my thing. You know, when certain people knew they wanted to be a doctor, I was jealous because they had a career path. But... I guess we're sitting here and you are the CEO. So did something change? How, where along your journey did you go, I guess, from I'm going to be a teacher in Japan to I could become a CEO? What, what was that journey for you? Oh, yes, it was a journey. And I should correct you, I'm not a CEO now. I was a CEO. I'm now the uh, MD of the, the, the team that I'm in. So I think there's probably a couple of moments for me that I would say were pivotal. And weirdly, one of them was probably in my final year of university, and I remember doing job applications and, you know, not really worrying about it too much. And a lot of my housemates and friends, many of whom had gone to very nice private schools, which I hadn't. I went to pretty rubbish state school. And I remember them getting offered interviews and me not. And there was nothing that distinguished our CVs except for where we'd gone to school. Like our academics were the same. I probably had slightly more extracurricular activities. And i couldn't work it out. And I think that was probably the first time that I realized I was going to have to work really hard, right? And I was going to have to put some legwork in here. So I um, I worked my socks off. I remember thinking, you know, you, you need a good result. I literally, this is my first, first time I realized how stubborn I was. I think my first final term of uni, I, I mean, I worked and I got a first and that then on my CV definitely helped me to open doors. I think that was in a day in science where first weren't as maybe perhaps weren't as prevalent as as they are now not to take away from the, the you know that achievement so i think that was the first time i realized i was going to have to work hard and then and this is something i really try and now do wherever i can for other people my line manager at mars was amazing he was i don't know i'm not in touch with him anymore he was late 50s i mean he was an amazing manager and i remember sitting with him and him saying to me you know catherine if you work hard you know, you could do X. And in this case, X was they had this bell curve. If you're at the top of the bell curve, you know, you, you, you did well for yourself. And, um, you know, that, that could be you. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, I'd never really thought like that. Maybe this could be me. And again, I worked really hard and it, it was me. And, you know, it opened doors. And I think I've called it before, like lighting that belief fire in me that maybe for whatever reason, school never ignited or my circumstances never ignited. And I realized if I put the effort in, I can do this. Okay. So I think, and then that's how I approached every step of my career. If I really go for this, I'm going to get somewhere. And so I never thought I'd get to the top of this mountain, but I always knew I'd climb it. And I always knew that I'd get to the next step. Okay. And it turns out that when you keep going to the next step, that can also bring you to the top. I love that. I love the belief fire as well. And I, I this isn't about me, but I had a very similar experience and, and work being that catalyst. And I think to your point, if you're getting, you've got a good manager who is reinforcing that belief and also you are seeing those results, why wouldn't you then keep climbing and keep climbing? And what is it? It's a big question. What 
from that point onwards, was it that drove you? You, you mentioned you work hard and you, you focus just on the next step. What, what drove you to it? Was it just the internal satisfaction of it reaching that next step? Was there a long off goal of you know being on a beach in 20 years time? What, what was the driver? I think there's loads. I think for me, I've enjoyed the journey. So it's not all about the outcome. And perhaps that's helped me achieve the outcomes. I love the journey. And, you know, I said at the beginning, if you can find a job where you like what you're doing, I love problem solving. I love that moment where a brief comes in and I'm like, how are we going to do this? And, you know, I love nurturing a team and, and helping them work towards it. And I love seeing a team thrive and, you know, pitching and running workshops and being with people and particularly in this role that I'm in now. And again, I'm sure we'll come on to that, like crossing paths with some of the most phenomenal people in the world. It's inspiring. And so I think I enjoy it. Right. And, um, yeah, I think for me, that's, that's been a massive part of the, part of the success really. Amazing. And we, we will shortly come on to the journey you're on with work. So I do have a lot of questions about you know, the business you're building and, and how the role came to being. But I think you mentioned earlier, and you, when you were in the room with Anna, you, you asked her, you know, what would your advice be to women? And I think we've touched on some themes around maternity leave and, and obviously that advice. And I, I'd be keen to get your take on actually where our industry is in terms of gender diversity and also how we can do more for women and helping them climb the career ladder in consulting. I think um, it is something that troubles me quite often, actually. But but before we dive into why it troubles me, I think we shouldn't forget for a lot of women, it is choice. You know, and and I think once you have kids, and, and to be totally transparent, if I was in a if I was in a big consulting firm that required me to be in another continent to my kids for most of the time, I'm not sure I'd be there either, right? But that would have been on my terms. And I think for maybe for many women in those big companies, it is on their terms. But then of course, once they drop out there, you're right, then going upwards, you see mostly men doing that. So I think there's something around making it more possible. And what I mean by that isn't just what your employer is doing for the women. In fact, and that's something I feel really passionate about. The only reason I have been able to do what I do as a female is because my husband is supported in his workplace to work more flexibly and allow me to do that. And so for every woman that is on the other continent or working in the evenings, missing the drop-off, there is somebody else allowing her to do that. And you touched on this earlier. It might be a nanny. It might be that you're fortunate and you have family around you, or it might be your other half, right? But if it's your other half, their workplace has to make that okay. And I think it's slowly becoming more okay, which is why I hope things will change. But not as much as I want. So, so that that's one point. I also think there's a real lack of role models. I think when somebody is doing that, you know, thank you for inviting me here, realizing it's possible, like showing females who might be on that path that you, you can do this and this is an option. I do wonder if in this post-COVID world, it's got a bit easier as well. You know, you, maybe you don't have to be working late in an office five days a week. Maybe you'll choose to do that for three, but you know that for two or whatever, you will be where you want to. Yeah. And I think, you know, we touched on this earlier, sharing parental leave. I, it was a really good opportunity for both of us. But I know that when my husband did that, he was pretty much the first person in his company to do that. And he has since had people come over to him to thank him for, you know, opening the door and showing it's possible. So, you know, role models on both sides really matters. I think I think some great points. And actually, just because I've never heard anyone else talk about it, but it, it is now you say it quite an an obvious but really important one of that, you know, to that partnership, that team. If the woman is going to pursue her career, you know, unless you can afford nannies and and you know what comes with that, and we're just about to send our son to nursery, and I'm already learning how bloody expensive that is. But your point of actually is the man needing flexibility, or, or the other partner it may not be a man, but the other partner needing flexibility, and sometimes we focus on or you, you hear the discussion around the woman, not around the support network, and actually it's a really interesting point and. I don't want to spend too much more time on it because I do want to come on to why, but you mentioned your husband was the first to do that sort of shared parental leave. And I I say this as, as a man making some huge assumptions. Men can be, I guess, quite nervous about rocking the boat or being seen to you know, be asking for something that is perceived to be less or make them look weaker. Almost your husband's had chats with other men in, in his team. And I, I guess, how did he go about making these conversations with his employer? Like you say, it's, it, the world is changing, but I'm sure some are still nervous. Any, I appreciate I'm asking you for advice from someone else, but any thoughts for our male listeners, actually how they can be 
making that environment to support their wives if the if the wife is the one whose career is taking priority? Uh, maybe we should ask him this question. Do you know what? He just did it. it for us, and I think for him, I don't know how much of a big deal it was. And I remember him saying at the time he had a few odd looks and there were a few kind of strange conversations. But I think for anyone who's going to trailblaze a path, you're going to have that, right? And it might make a few people uncomfortable, but so what? And actually, he's shown it's okay and now other people do it. And actually, as you've just sort of observed and as I've mentioned, it, it meant that I could do what I do. And you know, he was saying not long after he sat in their company sales conference and um, you know, it was a female on stage talking about what she'd done and how more women need to do it. And and of course, and he found himself thinking that, well, yeah, my wife is doing that, but you know, only because I'm about to leave at five o'clock and do the nursery run. Again, I know we need to move on, but I, let me w- make one point. Um, you've just mentioned no, no, you've just mentioned nursery, right? And I think when you have kids as a couple, you know, you've got that decision to make. What are we going to do? Is someone going to be at home? Are they going to go to nursery? We're going to have a nanny. My kids loved it. You know, when you're at home and you've got a, a you know house that you're proud of, they're not putting glue everywhere and like painting the walls, but you send them to nursery and you pick them up at half six or whatever in the evening and they loved it. And and that really helps. So it's is that a trade-off? You know, my kids are somewhere that they love being every day, making friends and doing stuff I wouldn't dream of letting them do at home. I don't think that's a trade-off. I think they loved it. And um, that helps. No, I, I think a really good point. And is an example of what you said around role models. And and I do think COVID in a really good way has accelerated us. You know, when you suddenly look into someone's living room or kitchen and, you know, you see dogs and kids running around, that empathy is much easier. I think already, I don't know how you're finding it, but already I'm, I'm noticing now we're back in a world where people have meeting rooms. Barriers haven't gone up, but you just have less personal connection to talk about. You know, we're in a room together right now. If we were on Zoom and you're at home, I could see the books and, and we talk about what's on your shelves. I do think that's helped a lot, but I do, I, I guess, maybe to your question, for any women listening to this who want to support other women, how can they role model that holistic life? And I guess not simply the work element. You know, you mentioned working hard is part, but it feels like only a small part of what's led to your success. I just think you need to talk about it and normalize it. And I think um, the more it becomes normal, the easier it becomes. And, and in some ways, I, I just think, you know, you asked me how my husband did it. it it wasn't a thing. He's not got a massive ego. He, you know, he's a smart guy. He's still got a great job. I mean, he still works full time and he's doing great things, but he just decided that for that chunk of time, he wouldn't be pushing upwards. He will again, but not the moment. And um, it's kind of a bit of swallow the ego. And, um, you know, if you really are a team with that other person at home, then maybe look at their strengths and do it that way. So, um, yeah. Catherine, I feel at some point we'll do a round two or a whole, I've, I have every sort of enjoyed doing a parenting podcast. And I think hey, if that ever happens, I've got guest number one in front of me because it's, it, it's a really important, I think it is a really important conversation. And, and you know, what you just said there hit me as well of actually viewing things as a team and not yourself as, you know, my career is doing this, yours is a together we're achieving this. And, and that balance is just the same in any walk of life, you know, be it I'll, you know, with friends, we'll go to your place for dinner this time, we'll go to mine next. I, it sounds a bit mundane, but it's the same thing as you're making those compromises together. So no, I think really good advice. And like you say, just normalizing it helps people talk about it. So thank you as well for sharing because that's the first step, people hearing someone like yourself say it. As I said, we could carry on on this topic, but I do want to talk about your new role. I want to talk about the building we're in. I want to talk about the journey you've been on. And, and maybe we start with wide consulting as a concept because I know the magazine, I know the events. And so when you said, oh, I'm working at wide consulting, I was like, so is that to do with the magazine? Is that to do with the event? So maybe you could start for our listeners, tell me all about it and then dive into actually how that opportunity came about. Okay. I'm going to tackle that in reverse. I'm going to tell you how it came about and I'm going to tell you about it. So um, probably about three and a half years ago, we and I was mulling over, you know, what, what am I going to do next? We knew that the uh, decidedly was uh, joining up with another business. Did I want to stay? Did I want to be in the role I was in? I'd been there 15 years. I was like, what am I going to do next? And um, this job spec appeared in front of me, really out the blue, that spoke about you know, Wired and I loved Wired, you know, we used Wired to feed into some of our insight work and our innovation work. And um, they were thinking about building their consulting division. Obviously, we're part of Condé Nast, Condé Nast Publishing. Publishers need to diversify their revenue streams. And, and one of the ideas that the board had come up with was for this Wired consulting business. 
And I remember looking at this spec and thinking, whoa, you know, almost doing a lot of the things that I've done before, but for a phenomenal brand that I imagine would, would open doors. So that was the job spec. That was, it was literally a blank piece of paper and come in and work out if you took Wired, which is all around the trends and technologies that are shaping our world. If you took Wired out to businesses, what would that look like? And what would you sell them? And so, yeah, three, literally three years ago this week, I joined the business, um, five months pre-COVID with this wonderful blank piece of paper to work out, uh, what, what we would do. And, um, it's been amazing. Yeah. I absolutely loved it. It's probably been pretty much everything I, I hoped it would be and more in terms of the, the network and the world in which I, which I now exist. Amazing. Well, I think that gives us a great starting point to dive in. And you touched on there, you had this blank piece of paper. Obviously earlier we talked about how you turn a business around. In this case, you just had a green field to create a business. It's a big question. How did you do it? Where'd you start? Yes. So I know this is something you and I have touched on before, but the first thing I looked at is what can Wired do? What can Wired Consulting do that is truly unique? And I'd come from a very crowded space, Insight Innovation Consulting, where everybody will talk about their unique strengths, and I'm not sure how many people really have them. So the first thing I thought I'm going to do here, I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to look at what we do that's really unique. And then I'm going to have a look at what I think the world needs that we can offer. And then I'm going to marry them up and hope they fit. And so I get looking at those, should I tell you what they are? Do you want to? Yeah, great. Um, so, you know, when you look at the wide brand, there are, I think there are four things about it that, that nobody else has, right? And the first one is, you know, the brand itself, right? It's edgy, it's innovative, it's trusted, it's all about technology. And it's really the only media brand that kind of focuses on on those specific things and sits in that space. So there's only one wired and obviously that's pretty helpful to begin with. Then you've got the audience, you know, you've got millions of people that read this magazine or whether that's digitally or in the print edition. And again, there's not many consulting brands that would have a readership that are willingly logging in to read all their content. So that, that, that was pretty helpful. And then of course, you've got the wide network, which is the thing that, that blew me away. The, the people who have contributed to Wired's article and its content over the last 16 years in the UK, I think it's 25 in the US. These are the people who are not just talking about change, which you'll often find in, in consulting firms, they're making it. Right. These are the people at the edge of sort of science and tech. So that network. And then if you look at that network, the knowledge that they hold, of course, is, I mean, it's unparalleled. Like these people can talk to you about the world that's coming in the way that no one else can. So brand audience knowledge network. And that's kind of what I isolated as my sort of start point for, for where we might go forwards. I love that. And I guess it harks back to what you were saying about Paul, Paul Richardson earlier around that sort of be brave. And it, the answer to this may just be that's what felt obvious to you. But I, pre I guess you joined a firm, you, you know, big brief, start a consultancy, figure it out. And for some, that might mean, right, I'm going to look at what currently is going on and, and I'm going to duplicate because you know no one ever got fired for hiring the big four. So I'm going to become the big four and you know we make innovation change. We you know, insert three-syllable word here that everyone knows. Like, what was it that gave you that confidence to take that approach to really honing in on what sounds like quite a bold positioning as opposed to just saying we do innovation and change and can, can help you big CEOs? Yeah, great question. So I've kind of given you half the story so far. Those were the those were the four USPs. And then I said, I also looked at where I thought the gaps were. And bearing in mind, I'd just come from running a company. So some of these really resonated with me. And the first one was that, you know, our world is moving so fast. And when you're running a company, you are busy and keeping on top of those trends is nigh on impossible. So let alone keeping on top of those trends from a, I would say, a trusted and impartial source. Because often people who are giving you that information, they're trying to sell you something. You know, they might come and talk to you about AI, but that's because they want to sell you their AI product. Or they'll talk to you about blockchain, but they want to sell you their blockchain product. And actually what we have here is just this impartial wealth of knowledge, which we can share with leaders to really help them understand what's coming and what they need to be ready for. So I think that was kind of an easy, I can see the world needs this. I can see we've got this. This is this is kind of good. And then the second area, you know, we live in a world at the moment, and I'd again seen this from my previous role, there is so much B2B content, right? Everybody is talking about, um, you know, what they think business leaders need to know, how they think they can help them. And 
it's really hard to do that in a way that sort of cuts through the noise. But again, you know, when you've got a wired brand and you've got the wired writers and designers, like that's again, quite a compelling proposition. So th- those were the first two. And I think that's broadly where the proposition built. So let's support with strategy and let's support with this amazing standout sort of thought leadership and, and, and events. And and where I want to go next, which I think is what's really exciting me about next year, you've also got a group of people who want to change the world. And I know that sounds like big and hairy and kind of crazy, but when you look at some of the brands we work with here, you know, the, the big tech firms in particular, they want to change these things. They want to get more women in tech. They want to get more women in leadership. They want to solve the sustainability issues. And they're not, they know they can't do it on their own. Okay. And they want to convene groups of people, be they private sector, public sector, whatever, who, who can do that. And so for me, that's, that's kind of going to be the third push. Let's go bigger and let's take all these amazing things that Wired talks about and actually move the dial and try and make the world better. There is a lot in there. And I do want to come on to that sort of next year and actually the growth of, of, of Wired Consult because I think there's a, a really nice story in there. Just on that, you know, those two sides that you explained, you, you've clearly done a lot of work on them. They're really concise. I guess you at some point started with, I'll assume, a blank piece of paper. And for anyone listening who either is in your position coming into an established brand to build either a consulting firm or just simply, you know, not just a practice within a firm, or maybe someone is going, right, I'm going to go out and launch my own firm. How did you come up with those? What was the process? Was it you, your desk, and you know, a week with a wet towel over your head? Was it workshops? What led you to define those USPs? I think that'd be really useful for anyone setting out on a similar journey. Oh, great, great question. And by happy coincidence, it takes me right back to some of those basics that I had in that training at Mars, right? Questioning, listening. And I did a lot of that, right? Questioning, listening, reading, thinking about my own experiences, putting that all together and taking time to come up with a sensible plan. So I think that that's the first thing. Listen, observe, come up with a plan. But then the second thing, which is really, really important when you start a business, you have a vision, you think you know what you're going to sell, but you really don't know which of those things will dial up quickly. And particularly when you're small, you can't do everything at once. So for me, what's been really important and more important than I'd I'd imagined is having a vision, but being really flexible in how I get there, right? And if I sell, I don't know, five consulting sort of strategy projects and five thought leadership projects, that's awesome. And I'm building both equally, but actually, do you know what? Last year I did more of one and this year I've done more of the other and that's absolutely fine. And then when you spot a new opportunity, Again, keep focusing on the core, but maybe send somebody off to see whether that's got legs, okay? But sort of stick to the vision, know where you're going, focus on that, but be flexible in how you get there. Well, I think flexibility is actually a very nice segue to the growth story because you mentioned you joined, do you say five months before the pandemic? Yes. So yeah, you joined, you were probably in the office five days a week, there was you know, meeting clients, suddenly global pandemic, world changed. Take me on that journey and, and I guess with one eye on on the growth of the firm because the team has grown quickly, you know, the business has grown quickly. And and to your point, you started with this vision, you started with this sort of USPs, you've been flexible, but flexibility has also helped you climb that, you know, we talked about career mountain, you're climbing that, you know, business mountain, take me on that journey. How has the business grown? How has that time been leading a business as well? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey and definitely compounded by, um, the curveballs of COVID like anybody else in business. Um, you know, I guess the top line story is, Actually, it's been amazing. You know, we've grown every year. This year we'll grow by 60%, really only limited by the capacity of the team. Next year we'll probably grow by more than that, which actually then gives you again that confidence that what you're doing is working and the offer is good and, and so on. So, so that's sort of the headlines really. In terms of how that journey has gone, I'd like to say it's been a sort of, you know, diagonally upwards line. And do you know what? Mostly it has, but there was a reasonably large fall off a cliff in March 2020, where we had just sold a lot of brilliant, like face-to-face engagements, where we're bringing this fantastic network together with our clients. And, you know, we were workshopping. And then of course, we couldn't do those anymore. So if ever there was a case of having a vision and pivoting how you get there, this was it. So we very quickly developed a successful digital proposition along with a lot of other companies. And, you know, I was really fortunate in that what we do can be done digitally. You know, did I find myself offering the right product at the right time? No. Could we switch to offering a different great product at that time? Yes. And we did that quickly. And I was lucky. I have an amazingly driven team of can-do people who were like, right, let's just make this happen. 
And it did happen. And I think when you've, you know, like, again, when you've got through a tough time like that and you've put the graft in, we've now ended up with a face-to-face and a digital proposition. And actually that's worked really well for us, particularly when you're trying to convene global teams and events and so on. So, um, yeah, it was a unexpected start, but I think, you know, compared to a lot of companies at that time, it could have been a, a lot worse and actually it turned out okay. No, and, and I think, yeah, a great example of, like you say, sort of putting that positive focus on it and, and making the best of the situation you're in. And something within the growth you've had, because, you know, 60% over that next year, like that, that's phenomenal growth. I guess, how have you approached the structuring of the business? Because with rapid growth comes new people, new teams, new offices, new systems. Like, actually, how have you found that side of the business and, and any learnings or advice, you know, things you wish you had done before that you hadn't or things you're going to put in place for next year, knowing what you do? That's a good question. And, and something we haven't touched on yet is um, we've spoken about big businesses and small businesses, but I'm actually in a small business in a big business. Okay. And that that's a very different category because you've got in many ways, the stability and the resources of that big business, you know, I have access to writers, editors, designers, illustrators, the kind of people you only dream of when you're in a startup. And yet I'm running a team like a startup that is trying new things and scaling up. So I would say I'm in a slightly luxury situation of being able to draw on those broader resources. That said, the other, I think, critical success factor is recognizing which roles you have to do in team, in-house, because they matter. And for me, actually, it's our consultants, it's those project leads, those project designers, those client relationship builders who have you know, the passion and the brains to design this brilliant work and bring it to life for clients. And actually, our project managers, they're in-house as well. And everything around us is outsourced to a team of people who have been tried and tested by hundreds of others. And that's very helpful. I think it's a great point and and actually interesting. I think something that's grown more with COVID, that almost outsourcing or partnering approach as well. I think when you don't have to have everyone in the office, you become much more open to that. And I guess that brings scalability. Is that just to your point? Is that when you say trusted others, is that purely wired? Is that partners across other in, like, other areas? How, how does that work? Well, wired, of course, it's within Condé Nast. So you don't need to go outside, do well, you? I've, I've got, you know, eight or nine brands that have tried these people out before me. So it's, uh, yeah, that, that definitely helps. The other side of that, and it's a really good point you raise, and, and I'm I'm watching both the clock and our. I know our meeting has a has a time, a sort of um, a hard stop with this room. So I'm I'm only going to go into this so much. But one side of it is that resources. I guess how has it been the other side in terms of you know larger companies are known to have more management structures, more layers, you know, more people you've got to talk to to get things done. How have you? And, and Wired and Condé Nast approached that side of things. Actually, are you quite well insulated or how are you finding that management structure of a big company while running and wanting to keep the agility of a small company? I think to date, that's been that's probably worked in my favor. I think to date, I've been given the, the space and the leg room to almost act like a startup. And because, you know, I was brought in to prove that this proposition could work. And I think I've been given the space to prove that, you know, as we grow and as we become a more significant entity, I think integration within the business will be essential. And actually one of my biggest learnings, which is probably, you know, something I I could have done better. And it's my personal goal for next year. I need to shout more. I need to network more internally. It's been a long time since I've you know, been in that big business. I've come from small, I've been in small here, albeit within big. And and now I need to kind of, you know, extend upwards and, and get to know that world that's around me a bit more because it's, um, that's going to be pretty helpful. Well, I think Catherine, that brings us nicely on to probably my last question on where you are with Wired Consulting. You touched on, you know, next year is going to be more growth. So you may not be able to give this away. This might be the the secret source that you're you're going to be using, but what is in store for the next year? You know, what is it that makes you so confident you're going to you hit that, you know, 60 plus percent growth? I mean, I think the first thing is it's that confidence that what we're doing is working. And I feel like we've literally been scratching the surface. And the more people I talk to, the more what we're doing seems to resonate. So I think even if we carried on doing what we're doing, I see that growth. I think that final area, and I touched on this earlier, it's this opportunity to do something bigger than us, bigger than any of our clients, and actually shift the dial on something big. And that's really where we want to push next year. You know, let, let's think about how if you took one of those big, meaty problems 
and you said, how are we going to make this differently and, and work differently and who are we going to bring together to do that? I think that's what my team is really, really excited about. Love it. Well, I feel we've talked already about the parenting podcast. There might be a round two for this in a, in a year or so's time, Catherine. We can catch up on that. This has been fascinating. Thank you also for sharing you know, both the work side, but also your personal side, because I appreciate that is your personal life. It's a big ask to sort of talk about it, but I know it will have helped listeners. To bring us to a close, I've got two questions that I ask every one of my guests. And you mentioned books before. So the first one is about books. I'm a reader. Like you, I, I read too many business books, not enough fiction books. But the question is, what is the book or books that I've either have the biggest, had the biggest impact on you or you found yourself gifting to others most often? Okay, I'm going to give you two quick, very, very different answers. The book that had the biggest impact on me was actually The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, which I read so many years ago um, by Stephen Covey. I remember it. I love it. And it talks about listening in there too. Great book. I'd recommend it. And the book that I gift most is Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls because I want my daughter and her friends and actually, do you know what, my son too, to kind of recognize what's possible and where they can go. I love those recommendations. The second one, and I'm I'm going back through, my, I think it was Lindsay Oliver who gave that recommendation as well. Very good recommendation. And then the last question, and this could be a roundup, it could be things summarizing what we've talked about, it could be something completely new, but you have three people in front of you. One is you as you were joining PwC, fresh graduate in consulting. One is someone who five to seven years in, they've they've done enough to have options, but they're still fairly junior. And then that last person is someone approaching partner in a traditional firm, you could say a CEO, an MD in, you know, in a in a smaller firm. And and the question is what one piece of advice would you give to each? Okay. Somebody starting their career, going back to myself, go for it, work hard, push yourself. You can do it. Right. And really you, you are the only person stopping you. So that would be them. Mid-level career. Actually, I think that's when you really need to start building your networks, find a mentor, find a coach, find someone you can trust to help you think differently, not in your company. Number three, partner level. I think, and whether this is going back to gender balance or company culture or whatever that may be, think about your legacy. You know, what do you want to leave behind you? How are you going to leave your company a better place uh, as a result of you being there? Some fantastic advice. And I, I don't normally open this up, but you threw it in there. So I've got to ask, when you said find a mentor, you, you went not in your own company. Why? Just it's a totally safe space. And I think from a position, from a very senior position, that person doesn't exist, right? At the top, it's lonely. There's only you. You can't go and talk to your line report about how tough you're finding something you need that external mentor. And I think even at the mid-level, having that safe space where you can actually go in and say, look, I'm thinking about leaving my job today. You can't really say that to someone internally. So go external, get a fresh perspective in a safe place. No, I think a really good point and a, and a great place for us to draw to a close. So this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for making the time. The only last thing to ask is if anyone wants to find out about yourself, find out about Wired Consulting, where would you point them to? Where can they find out more? I would point them to LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. I find it very useful for uh, networking. And if you would like to network with me, then please come and connect. Amazing, Catherine. Well, what we'll do, we'll put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. We'll also put a link to the uh, Wired Consulting website so people can find out more. And anyone listening who wants to reach out, they can get you on LinkedIn. So thank you, Catherine. This has been brilliant. All that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.